Welcome to the Federal Executive Forum Series on Federal News Network. Here's your host, Luke McCormack. Good afternoon and welcome to the Federal Executive Forum celebrating 18 years of profiling excellence in government IT mission programs. I'm Luke McCormack. During today's show, we will discuss best practices with artificial intelligence and machine learning strategies and programs in the federal government. With me on today's show are Rachel Martin, NGA Maven Office Director, Dr. Matthew Miller, former Principal Data Scientist for U.S. Army and current Chief Data Scientist, U.S. Courts, Dr. Brian Hens, AI Senior Science Advisor, Department of Homeland Security, Science and Technology, John Gassick, Senior Vice President, GM Public Sector Veritone, Bill Washburn, Chief Program Officer, U.S. Federal Progress, Mark Logic, and Ben Cushing, Chief Architect, Health and Life Sciences, Red Hat. Well, we're talking about AI and machine learning. There's a tectonic shift in this technology, enabling all kinds of capability. The White House is coming in hot with a lot of uh, policy program and direction, which I think is a good thing. Rachel, I know that uh, we used to call it uh, Project Maven. Now we call it Program Maven. And I know that uh, NGA has taken on a sort of a, a larger responsibility there, perhaps, along with uh, partnering with the CDAO office. Perhaps you can describe that a little bit and then give us a state of the state as to what is happening at NGA in regards to this technology. Sure, and uh, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, one of our main goals, uh, uh, we transitioned the then Project Maven from uh, the uh, OUSDINS office was uh, to take what had been a really fantastic pathfinder and give it some uh, stability and, and long-term planning so that uh, the warfighter would have confidence that you know these capabilities would be enduring uh, for them uh, across across the fight it. Uh, so what we are working on here at the agency is moving this through the relatively new software acquisition pathway within DOD. Uh, we're, we're committed to maintaining the agility, flexibility, and speed that the project was uh, known for under INS. Uh, and so this uh, using this approach, uh, we're we're uh, confident that we'll be able to maintain those same um, same characteristics and also start having um, a good sense of uh, what we will look like in in a few years as well. Uh, as far as you know, the agency and where where we're going with AI broadly, uh, obviously Maven is just one CV program, one computer vision program at uh, at NGA. And uh, so one of the things we're working on, of course, is how do we all uh, sort of come together to have a, a more strategic approach to computer vision? And that's manifested in a few different ways. Um, first, uh, probably mo most important for the GeoInt community has been the stand-up of a GeoCom subcommittee on data and AI. Uh, the data and AI subcommittee, GDAIS, is the acronyms they're using. Um, and this was stood up uh, just this past spring um, by, you know, by the director in his role as functional manager. The idea is, you know, this will be a forum where we can start taking some of the standards and approaches that may uh, have been best practiced at NGA or with the Maven and promulgate them more, more broadly to the greater GeoInt community. I think the other thing worth mentioning is, um, you know, just as uh, the public has become more aware of AI and some of the power behind uh, the technology. Uh, we have also, you know, at the agency, uh, had the same realizations and have worked really hard to get to be ahead of, um, you know, be ahead in terms of things like responsible AI. So the other uh, other uh, initiative that uh, the director announced most recently at the Aspen Institute uh, was um, the establishment of a certificate for uh, AI uh, AI standards. Basically, we're calling it uh, GEOINT, responsible AI training. And essentially, what this will do is anyone who has a 
role in developing AI within the agency or within the GEOAN community uh, will have a set of um, sort of standards and expectations uh, that they'll have to meet in order to be certified to be involved in that technology. And so it's focused on making sure everybody understands what the risks are across the entire development life cycle uh, for AI. Um, and, you know, that was, uh, was a really big focus of the director. He's a huge advocate, of course, for Maven. You heard him talk about it at a lot of different events, uh, but he's also equally uh, a, a strong an advocate for responsible AI uh, and, you know, American way of, war American way of warfare. So um, these are some of the, the, the broader strategic initiatives where we've gone as an agency in the past year. Such a powerful tool and such an incredible amount of data that you all have in processing using these tools. Uh, very thankful that they're... Uh, they're, uh, they're taking that healthy balance, if you will. Matt, how about uh, over at, uh, well, we're going to talk about U.S. Army, incredible amount of work that you had done over there at the U.S. Army. Give us the state of the status to sort of where you left that as you departed and uh, now on your way over uh, to U.S. courts. I mean, the Office of Enterprise Management, or formerly Office of Business Transformation, uh, has taken a number of initiatives to kind of drive artificial intelligence adoption. Uh, and use inside across the enterprise level of the U.S. Army. Uh, some of the initiatives, of course, that we worked on smaller projects like preventative. Well, I, shouldn't say, I shouldn't say smaller projects because it was quite a large one. But, no, nothing small in the U.S. Army, right? Um, that's true. But uh, one of them would be for me a smaller project um, would be like preventative maintenance, where we would look at a vehicle, uh, make a time series model to actually provide maintenance across uh, when it would actually, that particular vehicle would break down uh, and allow some a mechanic on the ground to basically make repairs uh, to keep that vehicle up and running. Um, one of the biggest initiatives that uh, Mr. Bakari Dale, the senior leader over at uh, Office of OEM, um, is actually heading is the Deep Green Initiative, uh, AI Data Science Challenge. Uh, the Deep Green is a very powerful tool for the US Army in the sense that not only does it do a challenge, so basically someone in the U.S. Army comes in with a very difficult challenge that they're using data science, machine learning, AI, even deep learning, um, that they can't necessarily solve it. Either they don't have the technical expertise, they don't have the manpower, or they just don't understand how to actually solve that problem because it goes beyond their capability. Uh, OEM comes in with Deep Green, allows them to not only get a production-ready model, uh, ready for deployment. Uh, it also allows for a state-of-the-art uh, solution, uh, which either matches or beats industry and academia as well. Uh, we've run three of those now in the past. Um, one was for maintenance, one was for uh, unliquidated obligations, and the current one this year was for uh, computer vision, where it was looking at uh, building out a visual system for understanding the environment for autonomous vehicle robots. Um, these types of uh, challenges weren't really possible with the uh, incoming depart department's uh, capabilities. So Deep Green was allowed to answer that uh, answer that uh, issue uh, and produce something that they can actually use in production, as well as being able to expand that model's parameters and be applied to multiple different other problems as well. Another benefit of the Deep Green initiative is that we're also, you know, not only producing a production ready model, but we're training people in the U.S. Army, bringing in people from academia, bringing in people from other departments like the Air Force, Navy, uh, Coast Guard, uh, training them on AI, these best practices, best uh, 
state-of-the-art models, how to actually code, how to use some of these um, third-party products that are geared towards making a no-code solution for AI uh, to allow AI learning artificial intelligence to kind of mm -hmm. spread across the government, not only just the Army, but across the federal government, people who want to participate into it, and also allow academia to come in and we can then share thoughts and processes between each other, uh, allowing for a more cohesive unit, uh, better practices to be formed and allow the army to maintain at a higher standard compared to other uh, industries and federal governments. As well. mm -hmm. Fascinating to, to allow the, uh, the, uh, the, the field uh, folks, the soldiers, et cetera, to use this technology and get it into their hands and uh, make great use of it. Um, looking forward to hearing about some of the other activities as well. Brian, how about over at Homeland Security? I was delighted to see the CIO and the Science and Technology Organization join forces, put together early on task force, et cetera. Tell us about what's happening over there, your role, very delicate uh, situation there with so many constituents that you're dealing with, trying to use this technology properly, safely. Absolutely. As was describing. So one, one of the major initiatives that we're focused on that you mentioned is uh, the Department of Homeland Security has stood up its first ever AI task force, mm -hmm. which uh, Secretary Mayorkas established in April of this year of 2023, with the goal of advancing the use of artificial intelligence to support critical Homeland Security missions. Um, and as you mentioned, the AI task force is co-led by the Undersecretary for Science and Technology, Dr. Dmitry Kusinov, and the DHS Chief Information Officer, Mr. Eric Heisen. So, um, in, in applying AI to these critical Homeland Security missions, there were four priority initiatives that were identified in the memo that stood up the AI task force. The first one is enhancing the integrity of supply chains and the broader trade environment. The second is to leverage AI to counter the flow of fentanyl into the United States through better detection methods and the disruption of the criminal, criminal networks. Uh, applying AI to digital forensic tools to help identify, locate, and rescue victims of online child sexual exploitation and abuse and to identify and apprehend the perpetrators. And finally, to work with our partners in government, industry, and academia to assess the impact of AI for our ability to secure critical infrastructure. So uh, this AI task force was stood up in April, as I mentioned, and continues to provide updates and uh, work very diligently to identify the areas where AI can be applied to these uh, mission areas. Uh, part of what the AI task force has started to do is as uh, we adopt AI within the mission uh, in September last month, DHS published two new policies that established the key principles for responsible use of AI and to specify how DHS will ensure the use of facial recognition and facial capture technologies uh, and subject to extensive testing and oversight. So these were developed by the AI task force. Uh, we're one of the only a handful of government agencies that have taken this step and the first to offer a comprehensive set of guidelines specifically on ethics. So it's Directive 2611, the use of facial recognition and face capture technologies, and it dictates a number of things. First one is that face recognition and face capture technologies will be thoroughly tested to ensure that no unintended biases or disparate impact in accordance to national standards. So that's extremely important for the department. Also, we'll review all existing face recognition and face capture technologies to conduct periodic reviews and testing to ensure that national standards are continued to be met. And we'll allow US citizens to afford the uh, right to opt out of face recognition for specific uh, non-law enforcement uses. So it prohibits the facial recognition from being used as a sole basis for any law or civil enforcement related actions. And another area that the AI task force is looking at is how to create a better trained workforce at all levels from 
the users to the managers, all the way up to senior leadership. Such an incredible technology and uh, the respectful use of it is so important. I think I heard the secretary say one time that uh, Homeland Security, if it's not the largest, one of the largest agencies as far as interacting with the public at large. So um, really appreciate you all taking a leadership role on that. John at Veritone, you all are right smack into this technology and enabling and unlocking these capabilities for the agencies. Give us a state of status to uh, what is happening across that landscape. That's a great question. Uh, you know, I think uh, one of the things that's changed, I, you mentioned it in the introductions to all of us, is the, the large language models that became available to everyone and very simple to use, created an interface between an AI model and, and lots of humans. And, and one of the things that we've seen over, you know, our, we've been around about nine years now, and what we have seen is a, an increase in adoption once the human or the user understands the model, what it's trying to do, understands the solution and what it's trying to do. And I think the large language models made that broad based. Kids, young kids could go in and write a school paper. Parents could go in and do something. It's really that interface that I think has changed and added a lot of momentum. Underneath, I think there's a lot of going on in terms of you know, creating of new models, taking models, putting them together. Uh, for us and the thing where, that we've seen and where we've started to get traction um, with our solutions is really uh, making them applicable, making them applicable to a specific problem, uh, creating leverage for humans, creating leverage for, for dollars spent. And that's where we've seen the most uptick. Fantastic. And we really do appreciate that. Bill, uh, progress mark logic. Explain that to us, if you will. We all understand mark logic and what mark logic is and how that works and uh, the technology associated to that. Tell us about this combo platter, if you will. And then what you all are doing as far as uh, enabling this capability across our landscape. Uh, thank you for the question, Luke. So um, in February of this year, uh, Progress Software Corporation bought MarkLogic, and that acquisition has really empowered MarkLogic to um, be a more active participant, a now public company. Um, we have our... Um, a wholly owned subsidiary that is foci compliant, of course. Um, but the the power behind being a larger corporation uh, really drives a lot of what is the next step for Mark Logic. Uh, Mark Logic's been twenty years in the making. I think we were um, AI enabled before anybody else, uh, frankly, indexing on entry of data and uh, multi model rather than slow modeled. Um, <laughs> One of the bigger integrations that we've done over the last two years is to bring in our semaphore fact-based capability that really does drive reference models and enable large language models to be quick, to be responsive, to be fact-based, uh, enhancing those models with um, the, the capabilities, uh, you know, that from my perspective that are much more needed. Um, when you look at what Semaphore provides, um, we're providing the semantic knowledge, the, the knowledge that's pulling out those facts quicker, more relevant information for the knowledge models. Um, and then the other things that we're doing is we continue to uh, accelerate programs like with McBoss, our TDM catalyst for the Marine Corps. Um, that was a data modernization program where we took down the silos of data like we have been for 20 years in the government 
Um, but instead of just modernizing that into a data platform, we modernize that into the cloud. And moving data to the cloud is one of the key elements of gaining access, gaining speed, gaining agility for things like large language models, for things like semantic indexing uh, that really supports your AI uh, ML needs. Um, and then I would think the the other thing that I would throw in is we were awarded the Joint AI Center's um, Data Readiness for AI Development Program. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a large IDIQ um, where with responsible AI, we signed the Ethics and Data um, Initiative that DOD put forward in that. And I believe we were the only data provider to sign that as a commercial company. So we will commit to those kind of things within Mark Logic and within the Greater Progress Mark Logic. Well, we appreciate the partnership and we look forward to uh, great things to come in the future. It sounds like you're doing a lot already. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Seizing enterprise IT data isn't just crucial, it's revolutionary. Enter MarkLogic by Progress, able to transform your data into a centralized, secure, and readily accessible force, regardless of its form or size. Imagine a large-scale network with vulnerabilities unmasked, threat actors exposed, and rapid action taken. MarkLogic dismantles barriers and nurtures a seamless data exchange empowered by robust AI capabilities. Embrace data agility at marklogic.com federal. Maintaining the security of the nation is a demanding mission. To do it effectively, you need to get the most out of your greatest asset, the people under your command. Free your department to do more of what matters with Veritone's purpose-built AI government solutions. Increase your department's agility, improve decision-making, and automate workflows through a secure and scalable enterprise AI platform. Translate, transcribe, redact, and manage intelligence more efficiently, tipping the scales in your favor. Veritone, the enterprise AI company that makes humans even better. Learn more at veritone.com govai. The U.S. government demands performance, transparency, and value, exactly what Red Hat and open source offer. Red Hat is the standard choice for Linux in governments worldwide. Our cloud virtualization, storage, platform, and service-oriented solutions bring real freedom and collaboration to federal, state, local, and academic programs. Bring the power of open source and build a foundation for zero trust in Linux environments. Learn more at redhat.com slash government. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. We were just going over state of the state. Ben, I'm going to throw it over to you at Red Hat. I think about Red Hat and I say, wait a minute, these are the folks that uh, gave us all this great technology to get us into the cloud, make sure things run smooth, containers, et cetera. Tell us about uh, what you're doing, which is way more than than uh, the Red Hat we knew from years ago. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, I'd say the first thing uh, that we all should probably identify is that a lot of the AI development is happening in the open source communities around the world. So, you know, Red Hat's one of the largest open source companies in the world, and so we're as involved as you might imagine. Um, in, in the development of models, platform, and, and additional capabilities for monitoring and scaling and all the things you need to make any type of software work, whether it's AI or not. Um, uh, my my like personal favorite story in this is what's going on within the VA. They created an AI incubator 
uh, called Arches, which is specifically designed to allow for extramural research to happen against synthetic patient data. Um, and, and we're a deep part of the technology that enables that. Um, and then uh, just this past year, uh, uh, Mission Daybreak was a, uh, an effort within the VA, a $20 million effort to reduce veteran suicide. And um, Red Hat and, and uh, our partners was one of the, the winners of that competition. Um, and in that state, we built actual uh, AI models that produced a risk score for a patient uh, for suicide ideation, and then serving that risk score directly into an electronic health record so that a, a clinician could consume that. Um, and, and that's really uh, like, you know, point uh, inference work. Um, in addition to that, we also did population health analytics. So we we're able to look at the distribution of veteran uh, veterans across the country compare them against the, the programs that are in place for uh, depression and, and suicide and other behavioral health issues, and then um, pr produce an additional score for those programs so that the VA can make informed decisions on uh, investment and divestment in any one of the, the programs based on the, the geography of the, the veteran population. Um, with all that, I think it's really, it's all dependent right now on cloud services and, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it's actually sort of the future of AI is um, less about cloud and it's actually more about distributed computing. So what we're starting to see is models getting served uh, to as close to the data as possible. And the vast majority of the data that we're all seeing getting collected is being done by sensors that are at the edge. Mm -hmm. um, and by moving these models closer to it, we're reducing latency in inference work uh, and also creating faster decisions for action from any one of the the uh, uh, actors that that need to have those those quick decision making activities. So, um, you know, a good example would be DoD. You know, you have a patient who's in theater who is injured. Um, you need the inference work to happen right there in theater. You don't need a cloud service to respond because you're probably a disconnected environment anyways. And so, what we're starting to see is a lot of the training and upfront development happening in the cloud, but then a lot of the deployment actually happening uh, at the edge. It's a really Absolutely. exciting activity. Absolutely, at the edge, real time, speed of mission, if you will, super important to get that technology right down there on the ground, so to speak. Matt, uh, you talked about a lot of uh, things at US Army sort of top line. Can you give us a specific example that you'd like to highlight regarding a program over there or a project? Um, I think one of the most successful projects, uh, which I think when I originally proposed it would be the uh, current Deep Green Challenge, uh, looking into computer vision for autonomous vehicle um, navigation. Uh, there was a, it was a very high risk project in the sense that it, if anyone works in computer science, it, especially in computer vision, uh, those projects can kind of go one way or the other way. You can have a really great success, or sometimes it can be pretty much a large failure, uh, especially if you don't have a lot of background in computer vision. Um, we brought in, um, the Green Competition brings in people who are not experts in computer vision. They're not experts in programming. Uh, they came in, most of them came in with, with zero experience in Python, computer vision, and the, um, methodology needed to actually build out a successful uh, product. Uh, throughout the last year that this, pro the Deep Green has been running, 
we have not only beaten what uh, the Army Research Laboratory has made as the baseline model, the competitors came in, completely smashed that uh, by e easily over 10%, or not 10%, 10 times uh, the accuracy compared to what ARL, ARL was produced. But we also not only shown that a no-code tool was also able to um, come in, uh, we used the H2O AI as a no-code tool to lower the bar for competitors who have zero experience in programming, zero experience in AI, and zero experience specifically in computer vision. Uh, and they were actually able to successfully complete and even uh, rank in the top uh, three competitors using this tool. Uh, so not only have we successfully built a production-ready model for the Army Research Laboratory uh, using uh, LIDAR and uh, computer vision uh, data, but also trained people who have no experience in computer vision how to understand the models, how to build out the data sets, build out the pipeline, uh, train these models, and then understand how to evaluate them to know that they are decent models and that they can be used in their own work as well. So basically, we gave them the knowledge they needed to work in their own department. I mean, it's really fascinating to hear these use cases and uh, and just uh, thousands of these that are available. John, how about a Veritone? Uh, I know you all, as you said, have been around a long time in this space specifically. Can you give us an example of a program that you'd like to highlight? Yeah, I think uh, let's start with a problem. And I, I agree with Ben and Bill both in terms of, you know, the, the cloud being the the big factory of where these models are and crunching and then the importance of getting the data out to the edge or getting the getting the AI out to the edge of the data is uh, in terms of a program uh, one that we've had a lot of success with we started with uh, state and local agencies uh, police agencies which now moved into FedCiv and into FedDOD is automating um, the process of redacting audio and video for FOIA requests sounds fairly simple um, but it's a, a very, very large problem with, with all the body cams and CCTV footage and all the data that's available that people request. Mm -hmm. And then some human has to go through and painstakingly watch it, listen to it, and get rid of any of the PII or objectionable material. Um, we started on this actually uh, with an SI firm uh, who, had, uh, who had a problem. Uh, we built an application on top of uh, our stack. And it has now become something that we we can sell and people can use very easily. Um, what it's done is it's in law enforcement in particular, uh, given leverage back to the officers. Instead of spending time going through video hour after hour, uh, we let the AI models go through and do that. And then the humans uh, supervise and observe it. We call it humans on the loop versus in the loop, um, trying to give them leverage uh, and save time and money. Uh, that's been a great program. It's really accelerated uh, over the last year or so, this application, uh, because of FOIA rules across the states, but also the implementation of body cameras and grabbing more video content. I'll tell you a real quick story where, you know, you, if you, if you put a thousand uh, officers or even, let's, let's use 200. 200 officers are all in body cams. You know, they roll to a scene. There could be eight to 10 video streams that have to be gone through and redacted. And it takes roughly 10 hours of human time to redact an hour of video. So when you use AI, it can be as short as one-to-one, -one, uh, three-to-one for something difficult. 
fascinating to, to hear those statistics in regards to uh, thinking about the volumes of video data and uh, applying AI and just sort of distilling it down to a specific uh, nugget, Problem. if you will. Yeah, that I, I, that's kind of the ROI. And the folks that the folks that have uh, dealt with it, you know, understand the problem. The other thing that I would say, and, and this is under this program, we get traction on these things. The government agencies, police officers, that's not their business. Their business is to protect and serve. And some of this overhead that we've put in with FOIA requests and then giving them technologies that people want to see. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about a very, very post-event problem, right? The, the crime has happened. It's probably gone to court. There's a, a law now to, to request it. This is way down the system of value, but it takes a lot of human time. And I think the message for us that we're trying to get across is let's use AI for good, but let's also make humans more efficient, put humans on the loop and, and use the technology in a way that saves a lot of time and money. Amen. Rachel, I'm going to swing it up to you. I can't imagine the amount of data that you all are pulling and uh, and applying AI and then bringing those products to the warfighter. Different kind of use case than we just heard, but I'm sure fascinating ones. Can you give us an example of one that you'd like to highlight? Sure. And I'd, I'd say actually they're not terribly, terribly distinct. Uh, several of the other panelists referenced this challenge going from the relative abundance of cloud resources to, um, you know, perhaps some sort of disconnected environment where you don't have, um, you don't necessarily have all that available to you. So um, one of our more recent uh, partnerships, experimentations that we did was with the Navy. Uh, we actually had one of our team members uh, travel aboard the Carl Vinson and in this most recent uh, large scale, I'm sorry, in its um, most recent uh, composite training unit Computex exercise. And a um, couple of challenges uh, when, you're, when you're operating a float. Um, it is, of course, the definition of disconnected. Certainly, there are times when you know the that the vessel is able to connect to cloud resources, uh, but usually you're operating on a soda straw. So moving anything like Juant, uh, which is very large, um, becomes a challenge um, in and of itself. So uh, what we were looking at was how do we deliver our our data, our detections, our our AI output uh, in a way that uh, is usable uh, by by the fleet, right? And uh, that is a size issue uh, from, a, from a data perspective, but it's also uh, as, as we sort of look to how, how this data might be used um, in, in more uh, in competition space, right? In competition against an adversary, um, we need to also be able to sometimes deliver that data uh, without alerting anybody that we're doing that, right? So in this sort of denied environment, how do we deliver uh, the outputs mm. of, of our AI geospatial models uh, in a way that uh, the vessel is able to use them to enhance their battle space awareness? So we have one of our data scientists out uh, working with a uh, Navy program data science at sea. It was a really fantastic experiment. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm not going to go into too many details about sure. how they did what they did, um, but uh, we we uh, had a really fantastic time uh, getting uh, hands on with the users themselves in figuring out uh, one deliver how do we deliver detections without uh, without anyone necessarily realizing that we're doing that. But two, um, and I think also probably more most important, how do we integrate those detections with the native data with the local sensors that that vessel may have on board uh, as they as they operate. And so uh, this is an enduring partnership. You know, it's certainly not over yet, but the, you know, the primary focus is uh, looking at some dark targets. How do we fuse local data with uh, this AI detections from overhead in a way that that is useful? I think um, this is a really good example, too, of our sort of ethos and philosophy about about meeting users where they're at 
think it's really important from an AI development perspective that you really kind of be on the ground to understand how you can best integrate uh, that AI with the actual workflows of the users. It's not just you want to dump two million detections on them. That's not helpful. But you know how to deliver the ones that are most useful in a manner that's helpful and a time you know in a, in a timeliness that is going to meet mission. Timeliness, usefulness, and uh, hey, you're on a ship. We're going to get it to the ship, even if it's a soda straw that we have to use. So fascinating use case there. Bill, how about at uh, Progress Mark Logic? Give us an example of a, uh, a program you'd like to highlight. So I think the uh, program that I'd most like to highlight is something that takes us back to when we first started thinking about AI in terms of activity-based intelligence and object-based production. So ABI, OBP, I think was one of the foundation elements um, that really was driving knowledge models and knowledge uh, within um, the fact-based elements of um, data and how to bring that forward to determine um, anticipation, right? So anticipatory intelligence, this was a program for an intelligence community customer uh, that we know and love, but won't identify. Uh, mm -hmm. It was called structured observation management. And really what we did is we took the observation of something like a tank and then applied the knowledge of that tank. So let's say that a tank fully armed, um, fully equipped, uh, fully fueled, runs seven to nine inches off the tracks. Um, that observation would tell you that that tank is in route to um, engage. But if it was running 12 to 14 inches off the tracks, then that observation may tell you that it's in route for refueling and rearmament. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking at the things that you can anticipate, and apply that knowledge, and then your data can just give you that feedback instantaneously, you know that that information is being applied for that anticipation. The anticipation is, is this route, is this tank in route to engage, or is this tank in retreat to rearm and refuel? There's very important fact-based elements for the engagement of a war. Interesting nuance there, and I love the use of that technology to sort of suss out that type of uh, capability for the uh, for the warfighter. Brian, I'm going to go over to you at Homeland Security. You all are uh, you're really dealing with some gnarly stuff over there, as you described. Can you give us a specific example of one of those elements you'd like to highlight? Sure. So at DHS, we have a very diverse uh, mission set. And mm -hmm. so we've seen some value add from adding AI, uh, particularly in uh, biometric technologies to improve their, their performance in the real world. Think about the airport security checkpoints, infrastructure resilience and data response. But uh, a specific example I'd like to talk about is uh, AI that's used by our customs and border patrol agents. So um, every day, 40,000 vehicles enter our country through the San Ysidro port of entry at San Diego, California. And so traditionally, when a car drives north from Mexico, it's approached by an officer and they would uh, inspect it and then decide whether they need a second inspection. And so uh, a car recently drove by on that path and entered the port of entry and the officer had no reason to really go to a greater inspection than a normal stop. But at the same time, we have new machine learning models that have been deployed that are able to process huge amounts of data 
and it identified a potentially suspicious pattern in the vehicle's crossing history. It alerted the officer, the officer considered the alert and decided to refer the car for a secondary inspection. And it was during the secondary inspection that discovered in the vehicle's rear quarter panels and gas tank were over 165 pounds of narcotics. At which point the CBP officers were able to seize the drugs, the vehicle and arrest the driver and passenger. So this is where we see the real value of AI within the DHA's mission is to help the officers improve their ability to identify these um, types of uh, issues where speed and accuracy are very important and we're gonna to continue to employ AI for these types of missions. I love the use case and I love the use case, you know, right down there on the ground to the operator, the, enabling them to make a decision real time. That's fascinating and fantastic to hear that. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. Dive beyond the surface with Mark Logic by Progress. Modern defense unfolds with real-time actions driven by data synergy. MarkLogic's cutting-edge platform unifies, accelerates, and fortifies your data. From any source, it's instantly accessible. Unleash data autonomy, zero ETL, no delays, just immediate insights, and robust security. To find out more data solutions for your agency's needs, visit marklogic.com federal. Are you manually reviewing audio and video files? What if you could automate transcription, translation, redaction, and media analysis? Today, that's no longer out of reach. With Veritone's AI-powered government solutions, you can transform your day-to-day -day operations, saving your department time, money, and resources, and helping your agency accomplish your mission more efficiently than ever before. Go from days of work to done in minutes with Veritone government solutions. Learn more at veritone.com govai. The U.S. government demands performance, transparency, and value, exactly what Red Hat and open source offer. Red Hat is the standard choice for Linux in governments worldwide. Our cloud virtualization, storage, platform, and service-oriented solutions bring real freedom and collaboration to federal, state, local, and academic programs. Bring the power of open source and build a foundation for zero trust in Linux environments. Learn more at redhat.com slash government. Welcome back to the Federal Executive Forum on Federal News Network. We're talking about artificial intelligence and machine learning. We were talking about use cases. Ben, I know you have a whole treasure trove of use cases. Give us one that you'd like to highlight that Red Hat was uh, in the middle of. Yeah, I just want to take it back real quick to what Brian said about the, the local decision maker making. And the word that was kind of uh, floating there was augmentation, right? You're augmenting people people's decision making. And I think most of the use cases that I've observed in the healthcare space is about augmentation of decision making. Um, and the place, just to come back to the open AI conversation, the place where the VA is really pushing hard is, is, is in using large language models to augment the documentation that goes on around healthcare. So think, you know, clinical notes. Whenever you see your, your doctor, they spend an equal amount of time writing a, a clinical note as they spent with you. And the idea here is that an, an LLM can actually write a lot of that clinical note and the doctor can actually go in and edit uh, it down to for precision. Um, the VA is going into a, a tech sprint specifically to uh, take advantage of the commercial sector's ability to uh, achieve that kind of 
outcome. And that's coming up in the, the next few months. Um, and then the second one is discharge notes. So when you leave the doctor's office, you get a set of a bunch of paper that tells you what you should be doing when you get home. But each one of us is very different, right? We we may have a, a different primary language. We might have a, a poor mm -hmm. uh, education. And those kind of things affect our ability to to disseminate and make sense of the of the discharge note itself. So the, the idea is to use a large language model to actually uh, write the discharge note in the right context for the patient, so they can actually can can actually consume it. And this is an, a, a real great example of augmentation of the administrative and clinical uh, staff at any hospital uh, in the country in order to provide better quality of care for the patient. Fascinating and uh, a fascinating use case. And I like the sort of human on the loop, in the loop, and the augmentation. All three make a lot of sense. Rachel, we're going to talk about priorities. I know it's always tough to get your number one priority, but uh, what's the top of the job jar for you this year? Well, I can only pick one. I think probably the most pressing this year issue that, that at least from a Maven perspective at NGA that, that we plan to focus on as a priority will be um, the continued participation and integration of Maven capabilities into the broader DOD JADC2 work that's that's ongoing. Um, there's a number of exercises that are going on, whether it's the guide series that CDAO is leading, uh, whether it's things like uh, Scarlet Dragon and the 18th Airborne Corps. These are, for us, uh, core, uh, core areas for, to one, uh, continue to evolve our AI capabilities, but more importantly, understand how we, from a GON perspective, better integrate into the larger DOD efforts to uh, to kind of figure out what this JADC2 thing is. And of course, right, the particular focus there is, is on the Indo-PACOM AOR. Uh, and so from a programmatic perspective, we're also continuing to evolve and mature our um, our, our AI models to be able to work in, in that those kinds of uh, maritime maritime AORs. So I think, um, you know, it, the JAD, I know there's a lot of kind of buzzwords out there about JADC2, there's a lot of different people working on JADC2. Uh, I, I think it's really important for, you know, for the department and for us as a combat support agency to, uh, to really work to achieve some of those goals. And uh, from our perspective as an AI program, of course, we're most interested in partnering with CDAO as they, uh, you know, try to figure out what, what does that data layer look like for, mm -hmm. for the broader JADC2 work. Matt, how about uh, top priority for you all this year? Uh, I think the top priority for me would be basically like AI accessibility and understandability, like getting tools, capabilities, uh, and items into the hands of like individuals inside departments, having them be able to build their own models, having them be able to implement these solutions at their level is more important than trying to buy a third party a tool or buying a pre-built packaged uh, AI solution because then having them being able to build out those models, understand them and be able to explain them to senior leadership, other people, um, that's far more important than just slapping a bandaid on it and saying, okay, it works. Uh, understandability is also another huge issue with AI. Um, people are unwilling to trust the outputs of it unless they fully understand it. So building in the accessibility and understandability across the board is far more important for an AI development uh, than uh, uh, some other priorities that are currently working. 
such a powerful tool and uh, we really do appreciate the focus on uh, the proper use, how to use it and making it uh, a broad use for a lot of different entities to get their hands on that capability. Brian, how about at Homeland Security? I know there's a lot of activity going on over there. The uh, secretary's giving you all uh, a tall order of things to focus on. Top priority for you all this year. Yes, well, really, we're focused on setting the foundation for success in applying AI across the, the mission sets. Uh, there's the technical aspect of that with the data management, uh, data annotation, testing event environments. But one of the main things that we're focused on is establishing clear policies and regulations that provide a stable and predictive environment for our industry partners. Uh, by establishing clarity on rules and expectations, we hope to encourage a long-term investment. And also by establishing these policies and governments and best practices, we want to ensure the security, privacy, and responsible use of AI within the department. And so uh, that's going to be a big focus of the AI task force going forward. And as I mentioned, the, the two policies that we already set for facial recognition and facial capture. Very important policies that need to be set. And we really do appreciate you all taking the lead on that. Well, we could talk all day about use cases and priorities, but uh, we're going to focus now on the future. Ben, we're going to start with you at Red Hat. Fast forward two to three years. We know you all have a lot of stuff in the Petri dish, got a lot of demand signals. You're leading the pack here in a lot of aspects. What do you think it's going to look like two to three years from now? Uh, two things I'd highlight. The first is uh, taking what's going on with ChatGPT and OpenAI and bringing it to the edge. Um, so one of the challenges of OpenAI is it's a large public model with public data. We want to be able to take that same approach and apply it to private data sets train models against those private data sets that produce the same sort of output as ChatGPT. And there's a lot of technology enablement going on right now to do just that. Um, secondly, uh, we're going to see a, a, a explosion in the federated learning space. So um, one of the major problems that everyone here probably has experienced is data sovereignty, right? People have their silos of data and they don't want to make those silos, silos of data available to anyone. Um, the best example I can give is on the International Space Station. They have shared hardware between different nation states, and they want to use the same hardware so they can save money and, and you know, space and resources and so on. Um, and in order to do that, we need to be able to isolate the actual inference work that's going on and, uh, and isolate the data. So federated learning, the idea is we bring our model to where the data is um, and then train it there and then bring the model back uh, as a weighted average and then produce a new model. And uh, in this way, you can actually uh, consider lots of different data sinks uh, that are distributed across the world. Um, I think the area where this is gonna have the biggest impact, honestly, is in climate change, because so many of the nation states have tremendous sets of data that they can't and won't share with other nation states. And so if we can move those models specifically to where the data is and train it, we'll actually start to produce models that understand the, the general climate itself. And, uh, and solve for it. Well, we really look forward to seeing that. And we really do appreciate everything that you all are doing. Bill, two to three years from now, progress and mark logic fully fused together. What can we expect to see two to three years from now from where you all sit? Um, so very exciting times. Um, progress software has a 
plethora of great development tools, great edge tools, user focused for the developer. And, you know, we are going to be working very quickly and very diligently on that integration of those great user end tools to provide visualization, to enhance DDIL, um, you know, data to the edge, uh, to enhance um, our capabilities with semantic indexing and semantic search. Um, we will be uh, working on visualization so that we can bring our data, um, you know, the class of its own level of data to our users for the first time. Um, but I mean, you know, really the next two to five years really brings the three S's, scale, scale, scale. Mm -hmm. And nothing more can be said than to emphasize that these models are only going to grow. This data is only going to get bigger. Um, the, sets, the, the success that we had um, from the Gulf War with UAVs being able to take high definition video and apply that high definition video to data um, with greater airframes, with greater camera visibility, that data quickly outgrew the capability of the humans that were reviewing it and the ability to store it. Um, you could not keep up with the amount of data that was coming in from those UAVs. And that was in 2002, 2003. It's only exponentially increased. So when you look at data and you look at things like large um, models, and when you look at the complexities of all this, it's only going to scale. So that is what we're focused on, uh, being able to apply our capabilities against large language models, against the scale of data coming, and with the excitement of having a much larger company than just a data company. Looking forward to that scale, scale, scale. Veritone, you've been at this for quite some time. John, tell us what you uh, what you anticipate two to three years from now as you've been on this journey from day one. Well, I think for us, you know, we started in the media and entertainment space. Uh, our our customers there are, you know, all the name brand customers that you you see and watch every day. If you watch ESPN tonight, you'll see they'll give give affirmation to Veritone at the end of Sports Center. Mm -hmm. That's where we started. Those groups have been facing the, the data, video, audio problem for a long time. This group is talking about that now. How, how do we manage you know, UAV video? How do we take all this edge data and make sense of it? And so for us, we're really focused on solving these video and audio large scale problems and creating value for the humans um, at the edge and as the users. And to get really specific about that, I think the some the concepts here are all similar, taking models, applying them, taking data, fusing it together, making it accessible, making it available real time, creating value. That's how we have been engaged with it on the media entertainment side for a long time. And so my team on the public sector side of Veritone, we're taking those technologies and those learnings and bringing them to the public sector. And so we see an intersection of of data, compute, models, and putting together a solution that makes humans uh, more effective, make decisions faster, and create value in a way where 
humans are still in charge. You know, our ethical thing is humans on the loop, not this isn't minority report where, where mm -hmm. the AI is deciding who's guilty. This is really creating leverage. And when you think about that in that way, it frees you up to try some new things. I think LLMs have proven that. And that's what's why we have so much momentum in the public right now. We're, we're really excited about being part of this in the future. And so are we. And we really appreciate all the good work that you all are doing. Brian, two to three years from now, when I go through an airport, am I going to have a robot standing there sort of scanning my face and I'll just walk through touchless? What can we expect two to three years from now? Thank you. So, yeah, this is really where science and technology likes to think about because it's out mm -hmm. in the future. And it's not only about improving the way that we do things now, but what are the new ways that we can do things? So, you know, with our customer facing or, or, or public facing uh, missions, uh, we want to increase customer service by supporting more languages, uh, increase speed of response. Think about FEMA, immigration, Customs and Border Patrol, and continue to improve the responsible and trustworthy AI through moving forward with explainable AI, uh, better quantification of risk, looking at adversarial AI and how it will affect our systems in the future, both AI enabled and systems that are attacked by AI enhanced methods. Uh, we want to certainly improve the data and information sharing across the department. So as Ben mentioned, looking at federated learning and methods of doing that, it's very difficult when um, to share that data, but if you can extract the information that you need, are there ways of doing that to help us uh, improve our mission? And, you know, just continue with the uh, customer border patrol example that I gave, other areas where we wanna both increase uh, the performance and the accuracy of the officers and the people on the ground. And we really do appreciate all the work that you all are doing to, uh, to, to keep us all safe, quite frankly. So uh, hats off to all the men and women there. Matt, how about uh, fast forwarding two to three years? What can we expect to see in regards to these various domains and areas that you're focusing your attention on? Uh, I see two to three years. Uh, AI is just going to be far more accessible to just everybody. Uh, there's going to be more tools, more training. Uh, pretty much everyone will be able to not only get their hands in AI, apply it to their daily lives, but also understand it and make more models. Uh, the second one where I think most of the innovation is going to come from is from quantum computing, because as data systems, uh, as data becomes more complex, systems become more complex, the models are going to become more complex. Your typical computer's architecture is not going to be able to support those. Uh, so shifting to more of a quantum-based uh, computer mm. architecture may be able to uh, solve those more complicated problems that typical classical computer architectures can solve. And we really do appreciate all the uh, the extended efforts there. Rachel, you're going to take us home here two to three years from now. I know that uh, uh, the, uh, the program that you're running over there will be sort of fully indoctrinated into the rest of the ecosystem. Lots of capability that you'll be bringing out there to the various customers. What can we expect two to three years from now? that you can reveal to us here in public. Sure. Um, so to set the stage a little bit, I'll, I'll jump off of some of what, what Bill mentioned in terms of the volume of ISR data that we, we've already started to struggle with. Let's magnify that tenfold, if not a hundredfold, and add in the, the growing fleets of autonomous vehicles that all the services are investing in. So you now mm -hmm. have an amplification of, of sensor data that someone or something needs to be able to process. Um, on top of that, let's add in the explosion and commercial geoint 
um, not just currently, but projected into the future, both the, the um, expected global coverage, revisit rates, and, and uh, sensor diversity is, is going to be absolutely an order of magnitude larger than it is now. Uh, on top of that, we'll still have you know, our national technical means and um, the, those different sources that we'll also need to integrate. So we're, we'll be faced with a, a, a data-rich environment where we will have a, have a need to uh, rapidly correlate diverse uh, AI outputs into one uh, object or one geospatial detection, right? Are all of these things the same tank or are they four different tanks that were detected from different sensors, for example? Mm -hmm. So I think that's one of those big uh, focus areas or one, one of those things you can look for in the future is how do we reconcile diverse geospatial data sets and do it quickly um, because speed is going to be a factor. I think the other... Uh, other area to look at in the future is the evolution of large language models into large vision models um, and, and the growth of vision transformers as a technology that can both um, accelerate our ability to process image information, but also to generate new image information in terms of synthetic data. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, some of the newer, uh, uh, newer offerings come out in terms of uh, large vision transformers. Most of those have been trained off of open source, you know, uh, images of photographs and uh, in text. And so uh, I am very uh, interested to see in the future how we take the historic holdings of an agency like NGA that has uh, just a, 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 a plenitude of um, of written data associated with images to, to start using those kinds of techniques on that data. But uh, conversely, how, how can we do that um, and do so uh, in a fiscally responsible manner? You look at industry investments and what they spend to build something like, uh, you know, one of the large language models like ChatGPT. How do we as the government invest in something like that um, and, and sustain it? Because it is uh, quite a price tag, both in terms of um, the initial training and then the continuous retraining that's required. So that is a challenge, um, you know, and then on top of that, of course, figuring out and understanding how we can use those without um, endangering uh, people's lives because we're a national security mission area and we can't afford to have our AI models hallucinate or, or create, uh, you know, create things um, that are inaccurate. So um, th those are some of the challenges and areas that we'll be focusing on and looking at as we move into the future. Rachel, we really appreciate everything that you're doing and all the men and women are doing over there to keep uh, to keep this country safe. Um, I'd like to thank all the guests for taking their time out of the, their busy schedules to join us for this program. I'd like to thank our sponsors for supporting us on the show. I'd like to thank the good people here at Federal News Network that make our program so successful and enjoyable. And most of all, I'd like to thank the listening audience out there that tune in every month. You're listening to the Federal Executive Forum, part of the Federal News Network. Thank you for listening to the Federal Executive Forum series on Federal News Network. This show was produced by Treza Media Group. If you missed any portion of this show, you can listen to the show in its entirety and on demand at federalnewsnetwork.com.